Hello, welcome to the Leading for Resilience podcast, where we ask senior decision makers to share their thinking on what kind of leadership builds resilience in this time of permacrisis. I'm Shazre Cumberhill, Director for Strategy and Impact at Resilience First. And I'm Peter Willis, based in Cape Town, a senior associate of Resilience First and the founder of Conversations That Count. Today, it's a great pleasure to introduce our guest and my good friend, Professor Deborah Roberts, a South African who decided back in 1994 in the immediate aftermath of the first democratic elections, and having done some years of postdoctoral research in urban biogeography, to roll up her sleeves and join the administration of her home city, the Port of Durban. There she set up the city's first environmental management department, and today Durban has a population of around 4 million people, and Deborah is the city's chief resilience officer. But what I hear you ask, does she do in her spare time? Well, for many years, she's been a part of the South African government's negotiating team at the annual COP, Climate Negotiations. And since 2015, she has been the co-chair of Working Group 2 of the IPCC, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the pinnacle scientific body set up by the UN in 1988 to provide governments with reliable scientific information that they can use to develop climate policies. Her task has been to herd roughly 340 top-level scientists, all volunteers, to produce the IPCC's sixth assessment report, which was submitted to the world's governments last year. Now, whereas Working Group 1 of the IPCC concentrates on the science underpinning our understanding of climate change and how it's unfolding, Working Group 2, which Deborah co-chairs, focuses on impacts, risks, and how do we build resilience towards what's coming. So she's especially of interest to us in this podcast series. And as a mark of how she's regarded in the global climate science and policy arena, Deborah is one of four scientists recently put forward around the world as possible leaders of the IPCC as a whole for its next seven-year cycle. If chosen, she will be the first woman and the first African to take on that role. Deborah, it's lovely to have you here with us. Welcome. Thank you, Peter, and thank you, Shethro, for making this opportunity available to talk to your global audience about such important issues. We're really looking forward to it. So um, I want to alert our listeners to the fact that you and I have done this interviewing thing before, in fact, quite extensively, because in the six months running up to COP26 in Glasgow in 2021, and as part of an experimental climate leadership project, you and I had a half-hour conversation online pretty much every week, thinking together about the challenge of being a leader facing into the growing climate crisis. So I'm planning to play back to you some of the insights that surfaced from those conversations, Deborah. But before I do, I wanted to ask, what do you recall of that six-month-long conversation? What came out of it for you? Yes, I recall it really well, Peter. I mean, it was a, a seminal moment for me in many ways because we were completing the work on the Working Group 2 assessment, as you indicated, of the Intergovernmental Panel on, on Climate Change. And so very much thinking about where the world is at and what choices might might lie ahead. And I think those reflections that you and I shared every week provided a, a safe space to, to think about the tough choices that, that lie ahead. And, and I think in many ways underscored the fact that 
the easy choices are probably now all off the table. And, and what we're looking at is, is a challenged world and having to rethink how we place ourselves in, in that kind of world where the easy options are now gone and only difficult options uh, lie ahead. So they, they were challenging conversations, but I think good conversations, real reality checks for me. Yeah, I remember actually that um, right in the middle of our conversation series, your city underwent an absolutely huge upheaval, social upheaval. There were riots in the streets and and so on. And I thought when I was reflecting on this in the preparation for our conversation today, I thought this is also a profound truth about the climate crisis is that it never travels alone. It is always accompanied by other enabling or you could say disabling circumstances. So that from the perspective of a decision maker or a business leader, it is, may not be even helpful to talk about, right, can we now sit down and talk about climate change as though it, it, it was something you could treat discreetly. And you as a, a sort of a city administrator face that all the time. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I record that period of, of civil unrest extremely vividly, but I think it's important to see that in conjunction with what happened in 2022. So in 2022, in April and May, we had extensive flooding, which damaged infrastructure, particularly our water infrastructure, both water purification and, and wastewater treatment infrastructure which really has crippled the city in, in many ways. And, and that unfolding of events, the civil unrest in 2021, the floods that then happened in 2022, and where we can attribute um, an increase in, in frequency of, of that sort of extreme event to, to human-induced climate change, to me sends a really important message in, in a way. It, it indicates that those social tipping points or those social limits may well materialize before the climate limits. And so we have to be thinking about climate change in relation to this broader societal context that we're finding ourselves in, where people are finding themselves with very little left to lose. Um, and that creates a very precarious platform for ambitious climate action because the science is pointing us to the fact that we need a whole of society response. But if you've got portions of society who feel disadvantaged, excluded from the mainstream decision making, from mainstream resources that are key to agency and, and action, it really does then begin to call into question the ability to act with the level of ambition that, that has been indicated, certainly by climate change science. But also, more importantly, because we're in this world of polycrises, you know, I get worried when we belabor the, the, the climate crises without talking about the biodiversity crises, the pollution crises. So it's, it's a world in which there are many challenges, but all of which require us to pull together as a global society to act uh, in a concerted fashion. But because the world is so unequal and so unjust, this is making that kind of ambition very, very challenging to, to imagine and, and certainly to implement. So I, I had a chance to read through some of your reflections with Peter in those conversations. And one of the things that you mentioned was that this whole of society transformation that is required for us to even survive in the future, this kind of systemic change can only happen when the time is right. Do you think we need to have these kind of intense social pressures for the timing to be right? 
Or does it need to come down to that before the timing is right? Or do we have an opportunity to still change things before we get to the point of mass rioting, as you've seen in some of the areas that you work in? This is the interesting opportunity this conversation uh, provides us with, because it allows us to look back at those earlier conversations and really ground truth them in terms of what has emerged subsequently. And and certainly, as Peter has indicated, we've seen if we we look to to Durban as a potential playbook, a microcosm of of what is happening globally, we certainly have that cultural diversity. We've got a mix of global north and, and global south. Problems. What we are seeing is that we are running out of time, and I think that's the the real problem. Is for me, I'm even more aware now of this big ticking clock I hear in in my head because the the time that is available to mobilize society to address some of these fundamental structural inequalities that will allow us to create the platform for everyone to contribute in a fair and equal way to to tackling these challenges, we're effectively running out. So I'm thinking about this from the perspective of our audience, who are mostly business people, who invest in and manage assets, plant, office buildings, which are obviously extremely place-based. You can't easily move a factory if the weather turns bad. Now, one of the things you said to me, Deborah, in our 2021 conversation that I wanted to play back to you was about how the climate science that's being developed by the IPCC has real limitations for those decision makers who want to apply it to their local places and use it to make big decisions. We were talking then about your city of Durban, and you said, and I quote, I can tell you about the global trends, but I simply cannot scientifically tell you how Durban will change, which is not helpful because when you're planning a city, you need detail. If I'm going to ask my decision makers to spend a billion dollars on demand side management in water, for example, they want to know that's because a drought is happening next year. Whereas I can say we're going to get drier, but whether that's going to be next year, 10 years from now, I can't say. Yeah, and, and again, you know, this is one of these gaps that, that we need to fill. So if you look at the, the work that climate scientists do, you know, we are able to articulate, for example, that we will see sea level rise happening over centuries and, and millennia. Um, that's now unavoidable. We can talk about sea level rise up to, to 2300. But quite frankly, you know, my, my decision makers in City Hall want to ha- know what's going to happen in the next three years. They um, certainly have zero interest in the year 2300. Mm. I think it is safe to, to say. So the, the question is, how can science be helpful? If, if we're talking about joining all of these dots, if we're tra- talking about joining all of the levels so that we've got information that is relevant to context flowing between these levels, I think science can do a lot. So one of the, the key things for me going forward would be to see the issue of climate variability. So that's the variability we're going to experience over the next three to to five years, really being drawn into the conversation around climate change so that you get both of those messages coming forward, a sense of the fact that there is this long-term, often uh, unavoidable change, even if we act incredibly ambitiously from, from a mitigation adaptation point of view. But that's also being married with natural climate variability. We know, for example, that we are moving out of a La Nina into an El Nino phase in the end of the cycle. And, and that brings hotter and drier conditions for, for our parts of 
of the world. And that's what's going to be of immediate interest. So we need to be able to join the scientific dots for people. And importantly, if we look at the work of the IPCC in this next assessment cycle, which will start at the end of July this year, probably the first product is going to be a special report on cities. So this will be the first time that the global machinery of climate change science assessment, which has operated at the global level, will now drop down to looking at, at local issues. So I think we're beginning to see these dots join up in a way that, that makes sense. But we've got to have this information flow in a two-way fashion across these levels. Because, again, I think often there's this very simplistic understanding that Science generates knowledge, and then we've got to get that knowledge down to to decision makers. That's not the case. Decision makers themselves are important knowledge brokers, knowledge generators, because they use that information in the real world to take decisions. And that experience, that knowledge also needs to flow back into science. And I think that's another of those loops that we need to close. We have to have more active conversations between those two communities, but they're not two communities that are used to working alongside each other in regular fashion. And so, you know, if you're looking to concepts around leadership, you need people who can be the brokers, the knowledge brokers between those communities, because they're not going to live in each other's spaces, but you need people who are comfortable in brokering that knowledge and moving it through through that, that ecosystem to ensure that there is that two-way flow of knowledge. And that's a particular skill set. And we don't train people for that. You know, you either get a degree in science or you get a degree in public administration and never the train shall meet. And very often those communities can feel quite uncomfortable with, with one another and, and don't have a common language to talk to one another. So yet again, it's it's one of these scenarios where we've got the opportunity for action, but we're not joining the dots sufficiently to create the kind of critical mass uh, at, at a societal level to, to drive change. So there's a lot of this creating new systems, joining levels, you know, joining the dots to, to get things moving. And that requires a, a particular set of skills because the majority of us are not trained to do that. We're trained to be specialists in, in particular fields. I absolutely agree with you that it could be a game changer if we could, at scale, get solution-focused conversations going between these normally quite separate communities, scientists, policymakers, business leaders. I mean, it's now so clear that their interests are converging around confronting crisis and planning for really challenging shifts in operating conditions and so on. So what would you want to say to the business people in our audience about how you'd like them to mobilize into this next phase of thinking and acting in a more deliberately joined up way with those other communities? No, so I mean, I think this is a challenge not only for, you know, the, the private sector and, and the business sector, but again, it would be pointless them mobilizing if we didn't see some action in, in the science community and in the policy and decision-maker community, because that's the one thing, you know, we've learned from our scientific assessments is that this is a dance no one can sit out. Uh, we've all got to get on to, to the dance floor, hold hands, if we're going to create the kind of momentum that that is necessary. So, you know, I, oh, I, think, yeah. the, the, I, I think the the first thing, and, and certainly the, the business sector and the private sector have played an increasingly important role 
in articulating what the responses at a societal level might look like. They are an important source of knowledge in their own right and an important source of resources, which is absolutely critical. If you look at our most recent reports on mitigation spend, we would have to increase that by three to six times the amount we're currently spending if, if we were to achieve the level of ambition in the mitigation space. And on the adaptation side, we know that we would need billions more uh, than we have in order to, to increase our resilience and, and reduce our, our vulnerability. So the private sector is a, is a vital source of not only knowledge, but, but resources. You know, for me, the ability of, of the private sector is that they have huge convening power because of that influence, because they have taken an increasingly prominent role at a global level in terms of, of the climate change conversation. Because I think the ability to convene these, these uh, disparate communities and put them in safe spaces to talk, because it's all about trust at the end of the day. It's it's one thing to stand, you know, say we must all stand up and work together. But if you have distrust that exists between communities or lack of understanding, I think that's a, a real barrier. And I think there's a convening power that lies in, in the business sector that could be used to create safe spaces to begin to have these conversations around, well, what will it take for all of us to be able to, you know, throw our hats into the ring in an equitable and, and fair way and to move forward? And, and what are our real challenges and, and opportunities? I recall a, a meeting some decades ago now that, that was convened. A, a group of city representatives were pulled together in a retreat area around uh, Lake Como that the, the Rockefeller Foundation have. And we were put there for a week. And basically, it was Chatham House rules, and we could basically say anything we wanted about where our city was at, the challenges we faced. And that, to me, was one of the most revealing opportunities, because in that safe space, you could pull away all of the institutional, you know, concerns and and so on and uh, obligations, and just talk about what was happening on on the ground, and and look for opportunities to think more innovatively around how we might propose the solutions. So I think that kind of convening by by business, creating those safe spaces to have these conversations, which become the baseline for developing the trust, because we're all going to have to trust one another because we play different parts uh, with, within the ecosystem of, of action. And I think that conversation, the building of trust, the building of empathy across these various elements of society is really important. I think hiring people, looking for people who are natural brokers, who are these boundary people who feel comfortable sitting at the periphery of various worlds and looking into other people's worlds and can communicate across those boundaries is important. And Peter, you recall that I, I said during our, our conversations that having played, uh, you know, the role of boundary person for, for over three decades now, it's one of the most uncomfortable spaces you can be at. Because if you're at the center of the universe, you know, you're playing by the rules of that universe, there's a high level of trust that universe accepts you and embraces you. If you're someone who hangs around the edges all the time, looking over into other universes, there's there's a real problem. Many communities, you know, you find yourself um, acting as a broker between communities and neither community really knows who you are, what you're doing, or trusts you, understands you. And I think making room for those sorts of people is is really important. Uh, my experience is the, the people I've met who 
operate in that kind of world have, have created themselves. They've never been trained. They've seen the need. They go out there and they, they do the work. But I think we've got to be more directed. I think we've got to give people those skills in, in a much more active and, and structured way. It's interesting, Deborah, because uh, so, and, and maybe this is what I'm hearing is that the private sector can potentially play a very important bridging role between the scientists who are very black and white almost as they need to be and very clear facts driven, and the policymakers who often don't fully understand and are more focused on. And can create that bridge also between the uh, local and the kind of bigger picture. But how do we then, in, in your mind, avoid the private sector from doing what it usually does, which is focusing too much on the bottom line and ending up thinking about themselves? What does the private sector need to do to be effective in that convening role, in that bridging role, to really drive a whole of society positive impact? Because there's always a danger that will fall back to our kind of capitalist ways, if I could call them that. So, so yes, yeah, so there's a there's a real opportunity there. But what do you think is needed? Yeah, so I, I don't see the role of of private sector to be brokering because that implies that acting between two two poles. It's just a part of that broader conversation, but it has the the resources and standing in society that it can help set up these conversations that in fact are three-way, in fact, multiple-way conversations. So I, I wouldn't want to see the private sector seeing itself as a kind of broker between two polar opposites. It, it's a, a critical part of the conversation, but it must be in that, that conversation as well. What I think it has is a standing in society that allows it to create the platforms where the multiple players who need to come around the table uh, are able to to come around the the table. So I, I think that's its role. It's part of a broader whole. It just it has a standing and resources that are useful in in that that convening. But the question is, how do we ensure that that the the private sector doesn't ultimately resort to the um, challenge that I indicated before the the sense that there is either a technological solution or the bottom line is is more important. And that really goes to the people who lead organizations. And I think that's where, and, and Peter and I had, had um, you know, at least part of this discussion two, two years ago, is you've got to be able to get to the leaders of, of these organizations to have these conversations, because in, in many ways, they've got to have the skills of, of the knowledge broker, the people who um, are not frightened to to reach out to others, um, you know, to open up conversations about things that are slightly more challenging and uncomfortable and don't appear in the annual report that you send to to shareholders who are capable of telling a different story to the world because that's what the world needs. It needs to understand what an alternative option actually looks like, feels like, smells like. And and so we need stories told because, you know, having been a science communicator now for well over three decades, I can, you know, when I put up those graphs and those tables, I can see the eyes generally glaze over. There are very few people who respond to, to that sort of information in a way that is transformative in their own lives. But if you can tell stories that people can relate to, that they can identify with, that they can understand 
themselves being a player in that story and and the consequences for themselves that becomes a very powerful piece of of mobilization and we've seen that in the social movements that have begun to to emerge i mean if you look at the youth certainly they walk around you know and i've, I've seen ipcc reports in the hands of Greta and the other youth activists but if you look at their their narrative it's a story about a future in which they are going to live in which they no longer have options, in which they now want an agency to begin to change the narrative of, of that story. So they speak a lot in stories, and I think that's where we need to move to, is we need to be able to tell a story uh, to, to the world that begins to encapsulate some of this complexity that is honest, and, and Peter knows this. I'm, I'm very keen to be able to tell stories that are honest because people know and understand they live in a difficult world. And, and to sell them false hope, I think, is extremely dangerous. I think we've got to be able to tell people that this is a challenging world, but that there's great value in finding purpose in that challenge, in being an active role player in, in that, that story. And so, you know, to answer your question, I think is the convening power of business, but I think we need to do work with the leadership of business to turn them into storytellers in a sense. So yes, annual report bottom line is is important, but unless we can craft this alternative narrative, and you can only tell the complete story if you know the role of the various players, and this is why the conversations are important. If I'm going to tell a story, I've got to know, for example, what the private sector feels about its its prospects in its various sectors. I've got to know what government feels, what society feels, and not everyone is going to agree. You know, there's going to be a lot of critique that emerges in, in that story, but you've got to be able to tell a story that pulls everyone together. And that's a very different type of, of leadership. It supplements the the graphs and and the bottom lines and the policy documents and and the laws. I want to introduce this um, thing that, as you know, Deborah has been increasingly fascinating me in the last few years, which is the, the human response, the leadership response to crisis. Because what you're talking about there is, I'm thinking, uh, it all depends. That yes, develop a, a narrative, and, and I love this picture you're developing of, of leaders stepping into the challenge of bringing together the different pieces of the puzzle to think together and so on. But it all depends on what's actually happening that day, that month, that year in your space. And I, I, as you know, Cape Town went through a drought 2015 to 2018. And in the sort of 2017-2018 period, it became really scary. And so the, the stakes suddenly from being, oh, yeah, and it'll probably rain, it'll probably rain, suddenly it went up to, oh, my God, what if it doesn't rain? We are in so much trouble. And then what happened was a very specific thing to this conversation was that the uh, provincial and city government of Cape Town and the province of the Western Cape suddenly started casting around and realizing a big user of water is business and industry. What do we know about their water use habits? And it, they discovered that they actually didn't know very much. They didn't have a conversation going on, certainly not a data-rich conversation with their business community. Yeah, they met for sort of events and conferences every now and again and so on. And so they deployed, the two government deployed a bunch of people with some extra consultants brought in as well to go and literally knock on businesses' doors to say, hi, can we talk about water? And they say, yeah, please come in because we're really worried. And they said, show us what you use. 
And what came out of that was not only a massive uptick in the quality of information that the government now had about this vital element of the resource use, but they also found that business after business would step forward and say, how can we help? We're advertising to about a million Cape Townians every week with our supermarket products. How can we, how would you like us to talk to them about using water better? Oh, wow. Can you do that? Well, this is our message and then let's work on it together. And so there was an amazing amount of collaborative creativity. What I drew out of that was that it's absolutely in the business leader's interests. That's a real um, shareholder issue is whether my business can keep its doors open because it's got water to produce whatever it produces or flush the toilets in the office block and so on. So, so it is an absolute, suddenly water becomes a really material issue. And then with a little bit of encouragement, they start reaching out to each other across this sort of sectoral divide with some startlingly productive results in Cape Town's case. So I'm offering that in as a a recent example of how easy it is and how incredibly productive it is when businesses and governments step into a common area of need. And by the way, they were suddenly, anybody who knew anything about water science, climate science was in high demand because people wanted to know what the heck's happening and what's going to happen and so on. So when things are, when things are going kind of, quote, normally, unquote, it's easy to push these issues down the agenda. When you're faced with a crisis, fire, flood, drought, these boundaries become suddenly very different and more permeable, I think. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. And I agree wholeheartedly. And if, if you look at the story that emerged around Cape Town, it, it was very much a three-dimensional story. So the city ended up telling a story about the challenge that obviously reflected on on the science, but the the real challenges for the individual in in a home and and the differences between communities. But as you say, the the challenge, and this is the challenge we've spoken about uh, throughout the course of our conversations, joining the dots, you need to keep telling that story between the extreme events. And even though those extreme events are going to become more frequent, there are periods in between. And that's the real challenge for us, because we've got to be able to build a story that allows that momentum to continue in the aftermath of the extreme, once it has rained, we still need to be telling those stories about how we need to be evolving as a city or a society, as, as a country, to be better prepared for the challenges that, that lie ahead. And that's where you need those active knowledge brokers who, where that momentum naturally seeps out of the mainstream work, the day-to-day work of, of the various players. Acts like a bee pollinating between constantly moving, constantly reminding, um, taking information uh, across so that you don't need to build from ground zero when you're next there, that the conversation has evolved, you've kept it alive, new, new information has been brought in, in the periods of the non-extreme events to allow us to think more clearly about how we act. And so it's that, that building, the connection that's so important. Picking up and kind of going further into this idea of the storytelling that is required to really galvanize action. I think there is a lot to be said for telling stories about the lessons we have learned as well. And again, exactly, I think, Peter, what you were saying about 
how the situation evolved in Cape Town, what the response was. And we see communities on the front lines uh, actively dealing with some of the challenges that perhaps the global north is not yet facing, right? So I think there's there's a really important element that we don't talk about, which is sharing more stories about how challenges were overcome and what we can learn from those who have already been facing some of these disasters over the last few years and will continue to face them at an increasing pace and also what's gone wrong. So I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on how that storytelling needs to include both What's coming? So a story about the future and about the challenges ahead, but also about the challenges that have been overcome already or where we perhaps didn't do so well and what we can take forward to to prepare ourselves. And I think that's absolutely critical. And I mean, that, that's one of the things we've done here in, in the city of Durban with our climate change and, and biodiversity work it was obviously done what we needed to do in terms of putting in place uh, climate change strategies, for example, um, biodiversity policies and, and plans. But we've taken great care to document that, that experience, obviously to share good lessons learned. But we've also been very pragmatic and shared quite openly and honestly what hasn't worked, because very often your biggest lessons learned come from uh, looking at, at what hasn't worked. So other people can take a shortcut. They don't need to go down. Uh, the dead end that that you went down. They they could uh, leapfrog across those particular problems, but there are real challenges with that. You know, if you think about, for example, documenting that that experience at the city level, cities are very competitive entities at a global basis. Now we're competing for skills, we're competing for investment, both local and and international. You know. When the businesses we're, we're talking to with this podcast look to invest, they look at the profiles of, of cities. And so in that very competitive environment, it's very hard to say, well, we did this and this really didn't work. And that's challenging. So, again, we need a different culture that where you know performance management systems have driven us to this obsession with smiley faces at end of financial year reviews. and. The unsmiley faces are seen as hugely problematic and need to be corrected. Whereas, in fact, I look at the unsmiley face and say, well, what lesson is in there for us? And so it's a, it's a value system change. We, we need to get more comfortable as a society talking about those things and not holding them as um, you know negatives, but as learning experiences. And I think that's a, a really important issue. But it gets even more challenging because those kind of local stories, and it's that's really where the fine nuancing, the 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 texture of the tapestry uh, begins to to emerge. If you want those many local stories about what worked, what didn't work, to impact on the scientific press, which ultimately then impacts the big global assessments, the policy uh, negotiations and and debates in particular sectors, it's very hard to get that material, those local stories, into the peer-reviewed press, because generally uh, journals are saying, well, we want stuff that's of global significance that talks into to a global community. So you've got a whole system of knowledge generation which places a negative against talking about things that, that didn't work because of potential implications, reputational damage, and so on. And a knowledge system that seems only to value the, the big and robust global messages and, and doesn't really have an adequate space for those 
more local nuanced messages. And again, that's potentially where something like the private sector could come in and provide resources for the capturing in a safe space of some of those valuable lessons from these multiple actors who have all got stories that have highs and and lows with them. So they could in themselves become important knowledge brokers, really harvesting this critical source of, of information that has quite a difficult time of it currently to get into the spotlight where it can be looked at and influence some of these discussions. So we do have a broken knowledge chain of that. I have no doubt based on on my experience. And again, you know, I can see the the private sector playing a, a real role through foundations and and so on in providing the opportunity for that material to to be collected and to see the light of day so that it can influence the storytelling. And that way you begin to ground truth. You get the evidence that allows us to more accurately assess what is going to work, what isn't going to work. But again, that's that's an area where we need increased agency. And I think the, the private sector could play a, a key role there. I think we have just heard part of your, what do you call it, your sort of presentation at your interview for are you going to be the chair of the IPCC going forward? Because, I mean, if, if that isn't a program for radical and necessary transformation of this global science institution, <laughs> I don't know what is. You have my vote. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, Deborah, for your time today. We do have one final question that we tend to ask. So within one minute, when you look ahead from the perspective of your current role and future role, what gives you most hope? Yeah, so I've, I've stopped using that word. I think this word hope is extremely dangerous. Um, so I, I don't trade in hope. I trade in reality. It's it's very clear to me drawing from both my scientific background and my background as a practitioner over many decades that the future ahead is challenging for everyone. It's not only those in, in the global south with huge developmental challenges and structural inequities. This is a challenge everyone faces, and I, I think we need a mindset change. You know, for me, I scrap hope. I, I don't need hope. What we need is hard work, people who are prepared to do the hard work to fill the gaps, to broker the knowledge, to bring the unseen into the light, to be brave enough to host these difficult conversations, to be part of telling the stories that highlight some of these realities who are open to the critique that comes from working in, in these boundary spaces. So for me, I I'm, I'm, don't trade in hope. I trade in, in hard work and, and pragmatism and really would urge everyone to find purpose in the challenge that, that lies ahead. This is the greatest societal challenge we will probably ever face. And so really, this, this is the moment. There has never been a more significant moment in, in our species history to get down in the trenches and, and to begin to work hard. That's fantastic. I could not have ended this conversation in a better way. So thank you so much for your time. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. This is one of a series of conversations we'll be having on this topic. So please subscribe below and you'll be notified when our next interview is ready in a few days time. See you then.